Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. This week, it's another Nick in Time episode for you. We're weaving into 1958 in this episode, both with Dominic Dunn and his family, but also Truman Capote, who releases his famous novella, Breakfast at Tiffany's, the same year. Dominic and Truman, a complicated history, but rich in details and all the juicy stuff we love in this podcast journey. Let's investigate. When Dominic and his family come to the West Coast, they will rent Harold Lloyd's Beach Cottage with some very famous neighbors. The Dunn's first Christmas at the beach, they will attend the Christmas party of Patricia Kennedy Lawford and Peter Lawford in their beach home next door. Dominic will never miss an opportunity to write his own mother about all the happenings in his new West Coast life. This particular Lawford-Kennedy party was held two weeks before the actual celebration of the holiday, as the Lawford-Kennedy family would be headed to Palm Beach for the actual Christmas Day celebration. But this party comes with all the trimmings, gifts are open two weeks early, the tree is trimmed as well. It is here that Dominic really does begin to see exactly how terribly Peter Lawford is treated by Joe Kennedy. Dunn's sympathy for Peter Lawford really builds at this point. Dunn sees Peter being subjected to the worst of it from his in-laws. There are a few other swell soirees that Dominic Dunn and his family will attend at the home of Martin Manilis at this time. Martin Manilis would be Dominic Dunn's new boss in Hollywood, and wowza, the Manilis parties are kind of a big deal, attended by all the best folks. At the Manilis party, Charlton Heston will read Twas the Night Before Christmas for All the Children. David O. Selznick will attend with his wife Jennifer Jones. Oh, over there is Edgar Bergen with his wife Frances and his daughter Candace Bergen as well. Look around the corner, there's Luella Parsons. Dominic Dunn will write to his mother about exactly how quote-unquote plastered Luella Parsons got at that party. Our man Nick is certainly moving on up in the world, finding those better parties, making a move within the Hollywood system, not just within his work at 20th Century Fox, but in the social scene as well. Nick and Lenny will live at that beach house for a little while, but life as it does delivers all the good and all the bad. Nick and Lenny will experience two deaths of infant daughters in their beginning part of their time on the West Coast, and in that beach home, the death of their nanny as well. Soon enough, the Dunn family will be finding more permanent digs in Los Angeles. The trip that was supposed to last six weeks or six months will now be turning into a time frame way longer than anticipated. In 1958, the Dunn family, mostly financed with Lenny's heiress money, will purchase a home on Walden Drive. This will be the family home for a number of years 
as well as the centerpiece for the Dunn's early late 1950s, 1960s action in Beverly Hills. They host many a weekend afternoon party, along with the Dunn's infamous Black and White Ball in April of 1964. One pretty major event that does happen near that Walden Drive home just as the family's moving in. We talked about this one way back in episode 33 of Dunn and Dunn. It is on April 4th, 1958, that Dominic Dunn will leave his family and join all the other looky-loos at the home of Lana Turner. What happens April 4th, 1958? This is the night that Johnny Stompanato dies within the home of Lana Turner. Back up in our investigation and check that episode out if you have not already. But hey, 1958, Dominic has landed. Things are looking up for him, his family's settling down. They're making their way in this new city of theirs, wanting to call it their own, as well as building a foundation for the next two decades to come. A wonderful bit here from Dominic Dunn. This is from a piece called The Best of Times, published in July of 1997 in Vanity Fair. When our daughter was born, we left the beach and moved into Beverly Hills, where we bought a house on Walden Drive, which we both loved from the minute we stepped in the front door. For whatever reasons, it became one of those houses that people liked to come to, and come they did. It was always full of people. English lords on their grand tour of America stayed with us. We seemed to be forever giving dinners and lunches for someone or other who was passing through town. We lived extravagantly, far too well for a couple our age. We spent too much money. We took it for granted or at least I did. 1958, we are still very much in the good times. All things are very shiny and bright for the Dunns and their growing family. True happiness will occur for both of them in November of 1959, when their beloved daughter Dominique was born. Dominique Dunn becomes cherished in the family. She's the darling, she's the angel, not only of Nick and Lenny, but her brothers as well. And now the Dunns, with three children, the family is completed, and they will have quite the adventures in that Walden Drive home over the next decades. One more item to note here, it is about the time that the family moves into the Walden Drive home that Dominic Dunn will meet and begin his association with Scotty Bowers. Scotty Bowers, infamous Hollywood bartender, which is his cover job, but Scotty Bowers also operates a thriving escort service out of a Hollywood Boulevard gas station. There's a certain group of high-powered Hollywood influencers that use the services of Scotty Bowers, which those services are all very underground and very homosexual. Dominic Dunn will keep this part of his life very well hidden from his family, just like the other men that are using Scotty's service. More to come on Scotty Bowers, but I wanted to set this in place here. Dominic Dunn wants the wife and the family, but he is struggling with how to fulfill his own desires as well. He balances the two very much in secret. Dominic Dunn has a hidden life for a number of years, which is almost in direct contrast to Truman Capote, who in 1958 is making his own kind of magic.
It's a great time to take a quick break. We'll be back with Truman Capote and Breakfast at Tiffany's after the flip. Oh, Truman Capote, my friends. We have heard so much about him in our investigation so far, but there was no time better to drop back in on Truman. Put him back into the scene here is 1958 is a pretty big year for him. It is in October of 1958 that Truman Capote's novella, Breakfast at Tiffany's, is published. Breakfast at Tiffany's will bring a new kind of success for Truman. Although he has already been a writer, he's already been on the map now for almost a decade. He lands really in 1948 with other voices, other rooms. Although it is just a few years before in 1945 that Truman achieves his first critical success with Miriam. Truman Capote, brilliant, conflicted, and so much of a touchstone for our man Nick. Remember Dominic Dunn in his first novel, before he even creates his own pseudonym in writing of Augustus Bailey, Dominic will use Truman Capote as his inspiration for the fictitious narrator in The Two Mrs. Grenvilles. In The Two Mrs. Grenvilles, the narrator is Basil Plant. This is Dominic Dunn's stand-in for Truman, taking a twist from Truman's character in Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. The character based on young Truman in Harper Lee's award-winning novel was named Dill. It is easy to blur fact and fiction sometimes. Let's go ahead and try to set the record in line here. It's a good time to talk about the life of Truman Capote. Born Truman Struxus Persons on September 30th, 1924 in New Orleans, Louisiana, Truman is not a kid who has it easy. Truman's parents, Lily May and Archelaus, will divorce when Truman's about two years old. And Lily May, his mother, not too much into having a child and responsibilities. Lily May is 19 when her son is born, albeit her son is born because she was not able to procure an abortion. It is, you know, Lily May looking for a bigger life for herself than the one that she has been handed. And Lily May soon enough is going to set off to find that bigger, better life in the big city. Terribly hard to do with a two-year-old toddler in tow. So Lily May will promptly leave her kid, poor little Truman, back with her relatives in Monroeville, Alabama. For the next five years or so, Truman has a number of maiden great aunts, and the town of Monroeville kind of pitches in, including the neighbors, to take care of the boy. Again, the neighbors being the Lee family. This is where Truman and Harper become good friends, lifelong friends. And honestly, by the time Truman's eight, he's writing. Truman knows he wants to be a writer from a very young age. But this poor kid, he doesn't feel very wanted. He's terribly lonely. And you can imagine this would be tough for a kid with a tender heart. That tender heart will continually be broken. Because Lily May after leaving her young son in Monroeville, Alabama, will head to the big city. The biggest city, in fact, New York City. This would be the late 1920s, and Lily May is no longer Lily May. Lily May will reinvent herself and call herself instead Nina. It's a whole new personality for Nina. 
She's young, single, freewheeling party girl, playing in the big city looking for a rich man to make all of her dreams come true. There are most certainly some echoes of Holly Golightly, center point of Breakfast at Tiffany's, that can be etched from Lily Mae slash Nina's new big life. But see, Nina's really not having a lot of success. So when things go bad for her in the city, things get a little tough, Lily Mae will come home to Alabama to lick her wounds, so to speak. And it is with a broken heart, Lily Mae is going to lay all of this trauma onto her young son, every time she returns for a visit. There's a fantastic work by Sam Wasson. It's called Fifth Avenue, 5 a.m., about breakfast at Tiffany's and all the good stuff there. But I want to quote here from Sam Wasson, who describes the scene with Lily Mae and Truman something like this. In a whirl of fancy fabrics, she would turn up unannounced, tickle Truman's chin, offer up an assortment of apologies, and disappear. And then as if it had never happened before, it would happen all over again. Inevitably, Nina's latest beau would reject her for being the peasant girl she tried so hard not to be, and down the service elevator she would go, running all the way back to Truman with enormous tears ballooning from her eyes. A day or so would pass. Nina would take stock of her Alabama surroundings and once again, vanished to Manhattan's highest penthouses. This back and forth, up and down, definitely not good for a sensitive kid. Lily May is going to plant a lifetime of hurt and trauma onto her boy, leaving a child who will ultimately hold a lot of grudges. He'll be prone to exaggeration. Sometimes he just outright lies. But wait a minute, 1932, Lily Mae Nina has hit the jackpot. She's going to find a new husband, Jose Garcia Capote. He's a bookkeeper from Cuba, and Truman is then sent on up to the big city to be adopted by his new stepfather, Jose. The family moves into a pretty glamorous place on Park Avenue, although that won't last long as Jose is convicted of embezzlement Family fortunes will go up and down. Truman will attend the Trinity School, and it is here at the Trinity School that Truman Capote will meet one of his future swans, Carol Marcus, in the future to be Carol Marcus Soroyan, two times a Soroyan, before her marriage ultimately to Walter Matthau. But these are early days yet, and Carol Marcus at this time is young and blonde and translucent and made of moonbeams. And Carol Marcus also has two best friends. This trio will stay lifelong best friends. The first of these we have talked about a lot in our Done and Done investigation, the poor little rich girl herself, Gloria Vanderbilt. Rounding out the trio, adding two, Carol and Gloria, is Una O'Neill daughter of playwright Eugene O'Neill, and soon to be the 18-year-old bride of the 42-year-old Charlie Chaplin. In a vein very similar to Dominic, Truman is meeting some pretty influential people, movers, and shakers at early ages as well. Truman will be done with school in 1942. 
And at that point, his formal education is done. He's going to get his first real gig as a copy boy in the art department for The New Yorker. It's 1942. Truman is a young kid living in the city. And here you can see all of the sourcing and inspiration for his novella to come in 15 short years. Truman Capote is writing so vividly in Breakfast at Tiffany's about this time period. We have spent a lot of time on this podcast in the Upper East Side. There's so many threads within Breakfast at Tiffany's that we've seen. The Stork Club, the news and events of the current day, P.J. Clark, Central Park, Tiffany's, The Store. All of these scenes are set in the Upper East Side and Truman could write about it because that's what he was living at the time. Truman will eventually, though, head on back down to Alabama, leave that job at the New Yorker, because Truman really does want to begin writing in earnest and not playing copy boy in a nine-to-five. It's during this time that he begins writing Summer Crossing, his first novel. Other Voices, Other Rooms follows, with a number of short stories, too, and now Truman's really kind of getting noticed and getting paid, which ultimately, right, is the dream of every writer. Other Voices, Other Rooms is the first pivot point, I think, for Truman. This work will stay on the New York Times bestseller list for nine weeks. Other Voices, Other Rooms sells more than 26,000 copies. A little fun spider web here. The picture from the release of Other Voices, Other Rooms will capture the imagination of a very young 20-year-old Andy Warhol, who will write Truman Capote repeatedly in 1948. Andy Warhol will move to New York City in 1949, making all kinds of attempts to meet his hero, Truman Capote. Andy Warhol even makes his first art show in New York City focused around Truman Capote and his work. Truman Capote is a sensation. He's talked about. He's on the move. And Truman really isn't making any attempt to be any different than he is. Truman is small. He's effeminate. He has a high-pitched voice and is very, very queer. This is not a bother to him nor anyone else. Truman kind of makes it work for him. Even back in high school, Truman's well-liked. He's everyone's friend. He always finds a way to fit in using his oddity, his queerness, his differentness than all the other guys to carve and craft a space that is uniquely Truman's. It's an easy jump to see the inspiration for the narrator at Breakfast at Tiffany's. It's easy to see his storylines and how they shape. Going back to his beginnings in New York City, Breakfast at Tiffany's folds in parts of his mother, Lily Mae Nina, parts of the trio of Carol, Gloria, and Una, parts of the Swans as well, all packed into that character of Holly Golightly. After the release of the novella, many a woman says it's all based very much on her, but there are some that show up more than others. Holly Golightly is very much a conglomerate of so many women in Truman's life. In 1958, with Breakfast at Tiffany's, this really does become a different kind of breakout point for Truman Capote. He will say that this was the beginning. It was a new turning point for him. 
Truman will explain to Roy Newquist in 1964 in Counterpoint, My second career began. I guess it really began with Breakfast at Tiffany's. It involves a different point of view, a different prose style to some degree. Actually, the prose style is an evolvement from one to the other, a pruning and thinning out to a more subdued, clearer prose. I don't find it as evocative in many respects as the other, or even as original, but it is more difficult to do. But I'm nowhere near reaching what I want to do, where I want to go. Presumably, this new book is as close as I'm going to get, at least strategically. What new book here is Truman talking about? He is talking about his masterpiece, In Cold Blood, which will be released in 1965. In Cold Blood will take a long time to write. Truman is inspired originally all the way back in November 1959 with a short story run in the New York Times about the murders of the Clutter family in Holcomb, Kansas. There are big years for Truman from 1958 to 1965, bookending Breakfast at Tiffany's and In Cold Blood. Smack in the middle of those, 1961, is the year that Breakfast at Tiffany's is made, starring Audrey Hepburn as our fearless and vulnerable heroine, Holly Golightly. Truman Capote will claim over and over that Holly Golightly is not a call girl or a sex worker. He will describe her instead as an American geisha. Truman has this particular exchange in a March 1968 interview with Playboy. Playboy asks, would you elaborate on your comment that Holly was a prototype of today's liberated female and representative of a whole breed of girls who live off men but are not prostitutes? They're our version of the geisha girl. Capote will answer, Holly Golightly was not precisely a call girl. She had no job but accompanied expense account men to the best restaurants and nightclubs with the understanding that her escort was obligated to give her some sort of gift, perhaps jewelry or a check. If she felt like it, she might take her escort home for the night. So these girls are the authentic American geishas, and they're much more prevalent now than in 1943 or 1944, which was Holly's era. That's the end of Truman's quote about it, but I find the use of the term geisha here really interesting. It is a pair of geishas, that exact language, that Truman Capote uses to describe Jacqueline Bouvier-Kennedy and her sister Lee Radzowell in his torch of a story, Lakote Basque, 1965. That particular short story was written in the 1970s about all of his high society swan friends. And it is Lakote Basque, 1965, that does Truman Capote in. It ruins his relationship with all of his swans, but also his very, very best friend, Babe Paley. One of the pivot points as well in Lakote Basque, 1965, honestly, possibly the meanest thing ever written in fiction, will center around, in gnome de plume form, a character we already are very familiar with here at Dun and Dun, Anne Woodward. Lakote Basque brings up the death of her husband, Billy Woodward, back in 1955. Please return back to the two Mrs. Grenville's arc in our podcast journey. 
This would be episodes 28, 29, and 30 for the details on that Woodward arc. Holy cats, Alicia. There's a whole lot about Truman Capote here in his novella. Why are you intersecting this piece of information into our Marilyn Monroe mirrorball arc? Well, you see, it is Marilyn Monroe that Truman Capote wants for that film adaptation. She wants it, he wants it, but it never happens. I'm pulling this next bit from Sarah Churchwell, writing for The Guardian. Much of the writing about the film of Breakfast at Tiffany's acknowledges that when Hollywood bought the rights to the story, Capote wanted Marilyn Monroe to play Holly Golightly. Most accounts treat this as yet another of Capote's many idiosyncrasies, if they consider it at all. Who could imagine Monroe instead of Audrey Hepburn in one of her most iconic roles? But for anyone familiar with either Monroe or the novella, it's really not that much of a stretch. In fact, as many of the film's first critics observed, Hepburn is entirely wrong for Holly, a character who turns out to be a vagrant from West Texas whose real name is Lula Mae Barnes. It is difficult to conceive of a woman less likely ever to have been called Lula Mae, let alone a hillbilly or an oaky or what, quote-unquote, as Holly's agent O.J. Berman refers to Lula Mae, than Audrey Hepburn. She could be an ingenue, a naif, anything French you like, but a redneck? A hick from a Texas dirt farm? That's even more implausible than Cary Grant as an Oregon lumberjack in To Catch a Thief some five years earlier. Every inch of Audrey Hepburn exudes aristocratic chic. Monroe, by contrast, whom Capote knew well, though raised in California rather than Texas, was originally named Norma Jean, with an E like Lula May. And her parallels with Capote's Holly do not end there. She was a Depression-era orphan who was both exploited and saved by older men. As an adult, she would allude to childhood molestations. When reckoning how many lovers she's had, Capote's Holly dismisses, quote, Anything that happened before I was 13, because after all, that just doesn't count, unquote. She has an upturned nose, tousled, somewhat self-induced short blonde hair, strands of albino blonde and yellow, and, quote, large eyes a little blue, a little green, unquote. She, Holly here, is befriended by an extremely short, powerful Hollywood agent, who recognizes her potential and helps her reinvent herself, renaming her and providing her with access to education and a more sophisticated veneer. She runs away to New York, just as success in Hollywood seems assured, although Holly, unlike Monroe, knows she doesn't have it in her to be a star because she lacks the drive that precisely characterized Monroe as Capote understood. Like Monroe, Holly is in it for the self-improvement, as she tells the narrator. She's been around the block, for which she never apologizes, and she ends as an icon, a fertility symbol. The narrator sees a picture of Holly carved as an African fetish, 
Most of all, Monroe, like Capote's Holly, is, quote, is a phony. But on the other hand, she isn't a phony because she's a real phony, unquote. The novella's Holly, her agent knows, is, quote, strictly a girl. You'll read where she ends up at the bottom of a bottle of secondals, unquote. Mind you, the novella was published in 1958, four years before Monroe ended up at the bottom of a bottle of Nembutals. It's a fable about a Monroe monk who lacks her ambition and may thus escape her fate. Blake Edwards's film adaptation was released in 1961, a little less than a year before Monroe died, and much to her disappointment, she didn't win the part that had been written for and about her. Holly could have been the performance of a lifetime, as it would have been the performance of her lifetime. Moreover, Holly, despite being blonde, is decidedly not dumb, and Monroe was desperate to escape being typecast. The system will always typecast Marilyn Monroe. She will not land the role of Holly Go lightly. Paramount produces that film. Monroe is with 20th Century Fox, still being the queen of the lot. Although it is something to imagine how differently the film, or the film's legacy, or her legacy, might be if she had been cast. Breakfast at Tiffany's, the film is certainly something. Investigators, if you've only seen the film, I do want to let you know it is very different than the novella. I cannot recommend the novella enough. It's an easy 30,000 words and truly a work of genius. If you want an even more delightful experience, the audible version of the novella will bring you the wonderful vocal performance of Michael C. Hall reading Breakfast at Tiffany's. Truly, it is an auditory experience I wholeheartedly recommend if you have an audible credit to burn. It's a good time to take one more quick break here before we conclude today's journey. We'll be right back with a little bit of our man Nick's take on Truman. Our man Nick will use Truman as an inspiration not only for his first novel, but as a touchstone, I think many times throughout his life. Truman will use Dominic as well. They look to each other at an assortment of times in their lives for how each of them is doing it, how it might be done better. Truman and Dominic, a really complicated relationship. Dominic will use Truman as an inspiration for his first novel. Truman Capote will get his inspiration for the black and white ball from Nick and Lenny. They look to each other sometimes for how each of them are doing it, how it's done, how it might be better, past and present, sort of all connected there. There's a glorious piece of writing here from Dominic Dunn, taking this from a piece in Vanity Fair called Surviving the Darkness from December 2005. Nick is, our man Nick is, our man Nick will write. I always love going back to Los Angeles because it was my home for 24 years and I have many friends there. Robert Blake is more on my mind than ever since I went to a screening of the film Capote, which deals with the four years Truman Capote spent writing in Cold Blood. He called the book the first nonfiction novel, and two years after its publication, in 1965, it became a film starring Robert Blake 
as one of the killers in the story. Every time I have seen Blake at his trials, he has talked about Capote, and I would love to talk to him again about this movie, which was directed by Bennett Miller from a script by Dan Futterman based on the distinguished biography by Gerald Clark. I have enjoyed a movie. I haven't enjoyed a movie so much in a long time. The astonishing Philip Seymour Hoffman has reached his zenith playing the tiny, effeminate Capote. I knew Truman. He was never a great friend, but I had several intense experiences with him. He was a fascinating, highly manipulative person, incredibly talented but apt to say anything, who could tell lies and utterly captivate you at the same time. He befriended the Kansas killers who had been given the death sentence for the murders of the four members of the Herbert Clutter family, and he made them famous as soon as excerpts from his book were published in the New Yorker magazine. He also made them feel that they could rely on him to help them win an appeal. At the same time, however, he knew that he couldn't finish the book that would make him the most celebrated writer in America until he had witnessed their executions, which kept being delayed. Here's a very superficial story about Truman, but a revealing one, I think. In 1964, my wife and I celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary with a black and white ball at our house in Beverly Hills, and there was much advanced talk about the party. The fire department was adamant about the number of people we could invite, so we had to let all the guests know that they couldn't bring any friends or house guests with them. Truman was staying with the producer, David Selznick, and his movie star wife, Jennifer Jones, so naturally we invited him. Then he called and asked if he could bring Alvin Dewey, the Kansas detective who had broken the case and arrested the killers, and his wife. I told Truman that because of the fire laws, we couldn't let anyone bring extra guests, but he wouldn't let it go. It was clear that he wasn't going to hang up until he had gotten the Deweys into the party, so eventually I relented. They were great, by the way and Truman got the idea for his famous black-and-white ball in New York two years later from our party, but he didn't invite us. If you want to go back in our investigation, back up to episode 14, we go into all of Truman Capote's black-and-white 1966 ball. Going back to Dunn's writing here, fortunately there was another side to Truman. At the time in my life when I stayed for six months in a one-room cabin in Oregon, without a telephone or a television set, trying to pick up the pieces of my wrecked life, Truman wrote me the most wonderful letter. He said he was filled with admiration that I had dropped out of Hollywood and was dealing with my demons. He ended by saying, quote, But remember this, that is not where you belong, and when you get out of it, what you went there to get, you have to come back to your own life, unquote. I never forgot that. A year or so later, after I did return to my own life, I went to Truman's memorial service at a theater on Broadway. It occurred to me sitting there that if Truman had gone to a cabin in the mountains of Oregon and dealt with his demons, he wouldn't be dead at the age of 60. It could be that, that our man Nick uses Truman as his first narrator in the two Mrs. Grenvilles. This letter that Truman writes 
really does make a difference in Dominic's life. He talks about it often. I do think there is something kind of wonderful that Truman Capote in the late 1970s, while he is suffering so much in and out of rehabs, that he takes the time to write Dominic Dunn, that encouragement will lead to the courage that Dominic Dunn attains, gains, uses to make his own third act happen in the 1980s. Dunn's third act has very different consequences than Truman's later years. Truman doesn't really get that third act. And to be fair, Dominic Dunn's third act is awfully hard won. Goodness, I think that's an awful lot to pack into today's episode. We'll be back next week with one more Nick in Time before returning to our Marilyn Monroe Mirrorball arc. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for you being here, for listening, for telling your friends, for your kind emails and reviews. Thank you, thank you, thank you all. A big shout out here for our Patreon supporters as well. Y'all are amazing. Don't forget you can get ad-free and early episodes over at patreon.com slash doneanddone for $2 a month. You want to add a little extra? Cost of a cup of coffee, five bucks a month. You get all the dishy bonus episodes as well. We published one this week about Elaine Young and Elizabeth Montgomery and the husband that they shared, Gig Young. Another bonus or two are coming this week. Got a little bit more on Swifty Lazar and his famous Oscar party. And a few previous bonuses that attach to items mentioned in this story. Not too long ago, we covered the Stork Club in detail, as well as an expose on who is the real Holly Go Lightly. Y'all may want to check those out if you need a little bit more done and done between now and our next done day. So many spiderwebs in the world of our man, Nick. Thank you again for joining me for this journey. Until we meet again, friends, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.